It's time for another clip show, but this time I think the writers were needing a break as the clips are all replays from episodes in the last three years. So we'll do our usual, walking through the story, then throw back to our old episodes and the same moments the girls are recalling. Come with us now as we stroll down memory lane in Golden Moments Part 1. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance and sing, and laugh just doing our thing. No matter the misters that come As Dorothy sits at the kitchen table looking contemplative in her blue and white crossover collared blouse, a tan and white striped sweater and khaki wearing Blanche comes in with her mail. The ladies are quiet until Pepto Pink Rose comes in and is clearly hiding something behind her back. It takes the girls a whole millisecond to see something is up and they demand to know what it is. Dorothy doesn't care about the item. She's more concerned with the horrible smell Rose has brought in with her which she claims is a new perfume she's still wearing. Hoping to be of help, Dorothy reminds her, you can buy toilet water in a bottle. A joke that I still don't get. Coco, did you get that joke? I did get that joke. So I remember, because I'm old, there was a commercial for cologne I don't, or perfume, I don't remember which one, but the, the slogan was something like, because eau de toilette, shouldn't come from the toilet or something like that. Oh. And so it was like the the confusion of people uh, towards that word or something. I see. That I think that like whatever the product was didn't have like a powdery, mm. flowery smell. It smelled... Not good. Well, like Johnny Depp. <laughs> Sauvage. Ah, <laughs> oh, the, new, the new nasal experience <laughs> from Giorgio... F- what is it? Who does he do? Armani? I'm just letting you roll. Savage. <laughs> With his long ass chain wallet or whatever that is and his Steven Tyler microphone handkerchiefs. Bandanas, I mean. I've had it. Blanche has had enough of the runaround, so she just reaches around, rows, and finds an open can of wet cat food. A horrendous smell indeed. Rose is busted. She's been feeding the stray cats in the neighborhood again. She tries to ignore their sounds, but she's not as strong as Dorothy, who has trained herself to ignore the moans and meows coming from Blanche's room. Before Rose can get into any more trouble about the kitties, Sophia in her blue and teal checkered dress and teal cardigan comes in, and she's delighted by the smell. When she's told that it's cat food, she lights up at the idea that it could possibly be the seafood medley flavor. Not because she wants any, she just remembers it from her days at Shady Pines, where you could either eat cat food or starve. Just as casual as she was about the cat food, Sophia informs the girls that as of tomorrow, she'll be moving out. Just as she turns to leave the kitchen, Dorothy pulls her back in and demands answers. Well, Sophia spoke to her son Phil, and his wife, who leaves him often, has officially done so this time, even taking four of their six children. She would have taken more, but it would have been a violation of her parole. So, in order to help her son raise the two remaining children, Sophia's moving. It shouldn't be too long, even though they are, by age, only four years away from graduating high school. She guesses, given the family's particular history, she should only have to be there about 10, 12 more years. Irritated, Dorothy doesn't understand why Sophia has to leave them behind just because Phil called for help. Because, no... She didn't move in with Dorothy because Dorothy asked for it. She moved in with her after Shady Pines mysteriously burned down. To prove her point, we revisit the pilot episode, The Engagement. When a knock is heard at the door, it's assumed that it's Harry. But instead, it's a small woman, Sophia Petrillo, Dorothy's mom. She quickly gives us another oh boy by saying Blanche looks like a prostitute. 
first off, it's sex worker. And also, uh, you know, clown makeup doesn't exactly mean being a sex worker, but it still is a pretty good burn. I think in both looks and character, Sophia grows the most. Not only was Estelle Getty the youngest cast member, leading to a lot of makeup, I mean, they had a really low bar out the gate when it came to her hair and face. She looks like a community college actress doing a character workshop. But through the series, her character really grows to be not only the fourth lead, but a much more realistic and beautiful older woman. Additionally, they explain Sophia's sass by saying that she had had a stroke, which her character did, but that it caused severe brain damage, specifically to the part of the brain that filters what she says. Again, very sitcom-y. And while Dorothy does make reference to it in a few later episodes, it was not really spoken of ever again. She just remained her outspoken, independent self. While Sophia's burns are classic, her intro is one oh boy after another. She arrives at the house explaining that she had a Cuban taxi driver who was bilingual, who asked for double rate because he was, and that he would probably fall in love with Blanche because she was prostitute looking. She then refers to Coco as the fancy man in the kitchen and returns calling him an okay petunia. Here we get another short-lived opening credit shot of Sophia. Thank goodness they changed it. I couldn't take seven seasons of that gray makeup and bad wig. Harry then arrives and is very dapper and meets the girls. Sophia goes into a story about her old folks' home burning down and how dangerous it was. After Sophia meets Harry, she refers to him as a scuzzball, which I feel makes her a kindred spirit of mine. I like to think I have that same kind of intuition about people, not that I always listen to it. <laughs> Back in the kitchen, Dorothy won't have her mother throwing away the lives they've all built for themselves. They've been through too much. Sophia sarcastically responds, acting as though the house was a prison and Dorothy her warden. So Rose asks, can't this just be an extended vacation? Which is a great point that we don't get to hear the response to because Dorothy talks over Rose, implying that trailer life would be just too miserable for Sophia or anyone really to live in. Oh boy. Hoping their negativity will get Sophia to change her mind, Blanche points out she won't have any alone time and probably not even a room of her own. That's not a great argument. It's not that she gets much alone time now. For this, we go back to On Golden Girls from season one. Then we'll meet Dorothy's friend before going meta with a clip from a clip show from Bedtime Stories. We cut to that evening, the first of many Sophia and Dorothy will be spending together, in a scene that I can only describe as being ripped from the headlines. My ma and I are very close. Dorothy and Sophia, all the way. We have been through it all. Talk about it all. Get through it all together. But when Sophia sits on the edge of the bed, files her nails, slaps on her lotion, somehow makes tissues noisy, tweezes the old lady hairs we all get, you know the ones. Not there one day, the next morning it's a six-incher sticking out of your chin and you're certain you have no true friends because they would have told you it was there while standing next to Dorothy studying before making her way to the bed to complain about Dorothy's noise-making. Well, it's all too real. Just like that, my mom will file her nails, make a weird click with them in her teeth, have a four-hour routine just to go to bed, but at the top of the list are these little hums she makes when she's really focused on doing something. I don't think she knows she does it. They kind of make me crazy. And when those thoughts of mortality sneak in my head sometimes, when I know the days will come when I will miss her, it's those little noises I know I'm going to miss the most. So I try to not let them make me feel like I want to scream. You know, if you have a mom like that, you get it. I would love to hear any of those mom sounds or routines that your mom or a mother figure does in your life that maybe make you want to scream. So be sure to email us. My mother. Oh, yes. What are yours? My mother is the queen of size. Oh. <sighs> <laughs> and now I am the prince. <laughs> <laughs> the throne you is do mine. Love your mom is a sire. Oh my god! And your dad is a noisemaker. Yeah. Remember last time uh, we were hanging out with him, he was kind of making, like, not yells, but you know those little noise you make, and you're like, oh my god, that's where I get it. Yeah. 
whenever I'm surprised or something. Yes. I kind of yelp like a dog a little bit. Low, not low volume and not like a shriek, but just like a ha. Yeah. A lot. My dad does that. I never realized I got that from him. I'm an old man now. <laughs> I I hear um I hear my mom's so the the time this would always make me the most nuts was getting ready in the morning, grew up in a one bedroom or grew up in a one bathroom house, getting ready in the morning. She always had the heater on. So the bathroom Ugh. was 800 degrees and it was her and I trying to get ready for the day, which was always great because it was really special time together and we would talk and whatever. But she'd be so focused on like her mascara and kind of just kind of. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> and I just was like, make a noise or don't. And every once in a while now I've caught myself in the last couple months. I've been like, mm, 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 mm. and I'm just like, oh, it's happening. I have noticed you. I have uh, noticed that a few times. I know that's the noise. Yeah, that's oh it. my God. You have to say it. So that's I so stop because I can't turn into my mother. <laughs> oh, I would also like to say that my mother is a wonderful person that I love oh my God. so much. And she's the, she's a great mom. But boy, she can sigh. Yeah, this isn't against moms. I mean, no. you watch the scene and you're not oh. hating Sophia. Oh, yeah. But you, if Dorothy picked her up and threw her out the window, you'd be like, it's justified. You, yeah, you got to do it sometimes. <laughs> mom's got to go out the fuck. Oh, <laughs> mom's got to go out the window. <laughs> oh. That should stay with a little beep. Yeah. <laughs> Once in bed, Sophia's age shows with the use of Ben Gay, Vicks, and Deep Heat across her body for pain and tightness. As they bark at each other to go to sleep, the not-so-tiny Dorothy tosses and rocks the bed as she tries to find a good position. Again, me and my mom. Even as an adult, when we lived together, from time to time, she and I would sneak off to her room, turn on a good true crime show, and maybe take a little nap. But I am far more restless a sleeper than her. I move and kick and toss until I get sleepy and doze, kind of like a puppy. But not her. She lays down. That's it. Many an unexpected snap of, could you just get still, would come at me. In those moments, I should have thought of the Dramamine line for her. Not for nausea, but maybe it would just put her to sleep while I continued to kick and roll. When Sophia is asking Dorothy a bunch of questions as they were getting into bed, Dorothy asked, what is this, the curse of the Catwoman? I've looked for an old movie called that, but there are so many adult films with that title that I can't find it. But... Maybe that was the film being referenced, given Sophia's proclivity towards those types of films. <laughs> Going into the night, we get funky new transition music that gives us contemplative bossa nova as we find Dorothy and Sophia in Dorothy's bed. As Dorothy tosses and turns, she snuggles up next to her ma, who, in a near dreamlike state, assumes the poke of Dorothy's elbow is the poke of her late Salvador. Dismissing his advances, she starts to make excuses before Dorothy pops up over her shoulder. No, Ma, it's just me. Unable to get sleep, Dorothy wakes her Ma. She has a question, and it was not only a big moment then, but remains powerful to this day. Dorothy asks Sophia, what would you do if you had a gay child? Assuming Dorothy is referring to her cross-dressing, gladiator-loving son, Phil, Dorothy clarifies, no, not Phil. So Sophia assumes she's talking about herself. Of course, bringing some smart-assness to the conversation, asking if Jean is holding a membership drive. Membership drives are real. Membership drives for sexual orientation are not. And if she is gay, it's not that Sophia would love her any less. She just thinks she's too old to branch out so dramatically. Attempting to roll over to go to sleep, Dorothy stops her again. No, it's not me. I just want to know. This starts her beautiful response and the domino effect of what becomes one of the greatest scenes in the series. If one of my kids was gay, I wouldn't love him one bit less. I would wish him all the happiness in the world. It's because you're the greatest mother in the world, and I love you. Once again, reminding me of all of the beautiful moments I've had with my mom while gabbing at her after a date and she was in bed or those times we've shared a bed and talked. It's Sophia's honest and loving answer that makes you realize how great of a mom she is. Great and also still mom. That's why she doesn't linger in the sappy moment and tells Dorothy to shut her fat mouth so she can get some sleep. In my case, it was always my restless legs keeping Ma up. 
But Dorothy can't keep her fat mouth shut. She needs to talk about what's going on with Jean. So she blurts it out. Okay, this part I don't love. I always felt like Sophia's laugh was a little too silly or like acting something, but I digress. Sitting up at the news, Sophia lets out some squeaks of, isn't that something, before the two of them join in raucous laughter at the idea of Jean being in love with Rose, a.k.a. Little Miss Muffet. Little Miss Muffet is a nursery rhyme believed to have originated in the late 1700s. Referring to Rose as such implies she's young, naive, and maybe a little bit prissy. As the laughter continues, the bedroom door opens to reveal a jealous Blanche asking them what's going on. In stereo, the Petrillo women answer, nothing, as they calm their laughter and slink back into the bed. But Blanche doesn't buy it. She's heard their laughter down the hall, so she knows something's going on. Without hesitation, Sophia blurts out, Jean is a lesbian. Dorothy's annoyed at it, but Blanche handles the news surprisingly well, even confused why that would be so funny to the ladies. As Dorothy and Sophia try to clarify, Blanche tells them in her own way why she isn't surprised at this information. Okay, lots of people are, even Danny Thomas. Except I'm pretty sure his family was from Lebanon, a country surrounded by Syria, Jordan, and Israel slash Palestine, and it has nothing to do with who he's attracted to. Now, about Danny Thomas. My, oh my, where do we start? He gained popularity as a nightclub singer and performer, leading to opportunities on Lucy and Desi, Red Skelton, and Jack Benny. His popularity led to him having his own show, The Danny Thomas Show, from 1953 to 1964. He continued to work steadily through the 70s on shows like Get Smart, Happy Days, Mod Squad, and Kojak. He wrapped up his career in 1991 on the Golden Girls spinoff, Empty Nest, passing away that same year. And no, he was not a lesbian. He appeared on his daughter, Marlo Thomas's show, That Girl. Being that his parents were immigrants from Lebanon, Danny's birth name was Amos Muziad Yakub Karuz. Besides his legacy being carried on in this, one of the best jokes in comedic television, Danny Thomas was the founder of the nonprofit children's hospital, St. Jude. Wherever we go, whatever we do, count me into it together. And we're finally here, to the scene of all scenes. After coming into the room, sitting at the foot of the bed, and becoming confused about Lebanese and lesbian, the imitating being worldly Blanche delicately brushes her hair back with her hand as a stunned and silent Dorothy and Sophia stare at her with looks that blend annoyance and befuddlement. Letting the laughter linger, the ladies continue to stare before Dorothy realizes she'll need to do the clarifying. As she and Sophia sit up in sync, Dorothy enunciates, Lesbian. And as she starts to say, not Lebanese, Sophia is her hype woman, nodding in unison. It takes Blanche a moment, but then it clicks. Oh, lesbian. Then she sounds literally exactly like my Grammy from Texas. Lesbian. 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 <laughs> Making sure she isn't wrong about the definition, she starts detailing how lesbian means a woman is attracted to another woman. Stopping Blanche from getting too steamy for network TV, Dorothy chimes in. We know what it is. Still stuck on the logistics of it all, Blanche starts talking hardware when mentioning men have more to offer. This triggers a memory for Dorothy. She learned the difference in male and female bodies back in the third grade, when she was eight years old, when her classmate ran for class president, which I've never heard of for that age, but okay. And he put posters up reading, vote for me, I'll show you my wee-wee. Two thoughts about this. One, what a born politician. He's not only a sexually harassing scumbag, but he'll use his perversions to get a win. Secondly, what the hell kind of school did Dorothy go to that allowed for this child to not only threaten his classmates with exposure, but to then win by a landslide? I know it was Brooklyn, but weren't there any adults around to control this situation? After hearing the story of Mark Perper, the pervert, Blanche makes her way to the door while stating her inclusive opinion. I don't get why she's not into guys, but whatever, as long as she's happy. Before she can leave, Sophia drops the second bomb. Jean thinks she's falling in love with Rose. Closing the door, Blanche runs to the side of the bed next to Dorothy. Standing in her stunning peach-silk nightgown and robe combo, Blanche's transformation is about to begin. First, she puts her hands on her lower back. As she starts to digest the news, realizing Jean could have had the hots for her but chose Rose, an indignant Blanche can barely hear Dorothy over her own screeching. 
As she clucks out her frustration, bobbles her head, and flaps her winged arms, she now has fully become a chicken. And this hen has had it. She simply will not stand for such rejection. Attempting to validate her hurt feelings, she seeks Dorothy's confirmation that Jean has made the wrong choice. But Dorothy can only scream at Blanche to calm down before she starts to molt. Realizing she has lost control, Blanche regains her composure, apologizing as she once again starts to leave. Before doing so, she asks if Rose knows what's going on. They tell her she doesn't. Now in her sultry, nearly meditative tone, Blanche says she's glad to hear it. News like that could be really jarring to someone less sophisticated than she is. Someone that is worldly and educated. Someone that doesn't know the difference between Lebanese and lesbian. Instead of calling her out for her BS or just laughing her off, Sophia simply says, yeah, Rose won't be able to handle hearing Danny Thomas is a lesbian. There had been a string of cold weather, and to make matters worse, the heater had gone out. This moment in the show may have been inspired by a real event known as the 1985 North American Cold Wave. After an unusually warm December, cold air was gathering in the polar region, building up pressure until it finally snapped, spreading abnormally and in some cases record cold temperatures. The size of the event meant even Florida wasn't immune, leading to a record low of 34 degrees on January 22nd. Desperate for warmth, Dorothy sneaks into the smallest room, home of the smallest bed holding the smallest person, and curls up with her mother. Being half asleep, Dorothy's rustling triggers Sophia. Thinking she's talking to her late husband, Sophia tells Sal to take his shirt off so he doesn't get linguine all over her if they're going to fool around. Which also, I mean, there's so much there. Dorothy is about four times the size of her father. Sophia's saying that to her daughter. Sal would go to bed with pasta on his shirt. In my mind, it was like hanging out of his mouth. <laughs> yeah, I just pictured like on his shoulder and like yeah, his she, belly. She wakes up to noodles softly brushing her face. <laughs> Ooh, I'm into that. You know how I feel about pasta. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Horny for noodles. <laughs> Not as appalled as most people might be, Dorothy ignores her ma's dirty talk and tells her to go back to sleep. Now fully awake, Sophia sees it's her beautiful daughter who has come to her side for warmth and comfort, so she screams at her to get the hell out of there. Even as her own flesh and blood begs to stay because she has the only electric blanket, where's Blanche's heating pad, by the way? Sophia still isn't moved and only gives more reasoning as to why she doesn't want her there. She's a heat sponge. Sophia will freeze to death with her there. Fine, then, Dorothy says. Just turn the blanket up. Are you crazy? It's already at a blaring nine. At ten, you can cook a lean cuisine. Lean cuisine is the lighter version of microwave meals from Stouffer's. They require a few minutes in the microwave or a much longer time under an electric blanket. This cooking method is not recommended. Ignoring her mother's pleas, Dorothy snuggles up and tells her to go to sleep. Before they can, Dorothy's eyes pop open and she starts to laugh. The heat being out reminds her of a time it happened when she was seven and they were living in Brooklyn. Twaddling on, Dorothy goes into great detail about how cold she was and her doll, all while Sophia's eyes stay closed. Pushing the limits, Dorothy then starts to reenact her little girl voice. And in a moment I think most people have lived through with either a parent or family member, when you think you're having a sweet moment and reminiscing and they are totally annoyed, and like Sophia, say, they want you to cut the crap. I love how perfectly Bee plays the hopefulness in her eyes about her mother engaging in the story, and then the total disappointment when she is shut down. Once again, they try to get back to sleep, but this time they're both interrupted by Blanche, who, in her brown fur-trimmed jacket, is also desperate to get in on that sweet, sweet electric blanket action. But her request is met with a choir of no from the Petrillo women. Begging to be under the blanket, Blanche goes on. She's never been so cold. Her bed has never been so cold. Both shocking, especially for a Saturday night. As soon as she crawls under the covers, Blanche hears a noise. Yeah, Sophia farted. Not her problem. Y'all are the ones in her bed, and she will do as she pleases. 
But Sophia's gasp wasn't the noise the girls heard, although they are wide awake now, airing out the blankets as to not Dutch oven themselves. Well, what Blanche thought she heard was the heater coming on, and it sort of was. With Rose's arrival, we get the full story. She was messing with the heater, and she got it to come on. The only problem is that what came on was the air conditioner, not the heater. So now Rose will go from a genius to killer. Or maybe not. It is very much not recommended to use an air conditioner when it's less than 50 degrees outside. So in this case, she might just break the thing and they'll be fine. Or the air conditioner can get all wacky and actually produce somewhat warm air. Both scenarios are not ideal. Even though she's to blame for the house getting colder, Rose invites herself into the bed. For crying out loud, the bunny on her slipper has an icicle. Once in bed, the bunny has sought warmth up Blanche's butt. Finally all settled into bed, it's time for them to get some sleep. As a play on the Waltons' good nights, Dorothy replaces the names of the kids with the names of two of the three stooges, Moe and Larry. They were known for, well, not their smarts and not their not annoyance, so the names seem pretty fitting. After just about three seconds of peace, Rose awakens and starts to bitch about which side of the bed she usually sleeps on, and Blanche joins her. I don't know why they didn't just switch. And I don't mind that you wouldn't be able to sleep on the side you want, but I really would struggle with not being allowed to move. I'm a roller, baby. Sophia, whose bed and sleep they are disrupting, doesn't understand the complaints. Back at home, four people in bed was a luxury, as the others were stuck with eight. While it's all a joke, it's sort of a southern oh boy when she continues. She did have to share a bed with two brothers until she was 17, a nightmare, and was even engaged to one for a bit. While that seems like a joke about how close they had to be, gross, she implies there's another story to go with that, and Rose would like to hear it. Frankly, I would like to hear it. With all this going on, Dorothy has had it. And using her growly teacher voice, she not only puts everyone in their place, but she gives us all a little bit of a plot whoopsie. Didn't Blanche just say how cold she was, especially for a Saturday night? And didn't Dorothy just say, she has to get up early in the morning? For what? Sunday school? Perhaps it was more so one of those mom lines to get everyone to shut up. Just as everyone is finally comfortable, Rose has forgotten something. Assuming she means to go to the bathroom, annoyed Blanche tells her to just go in her pants. But it isn't pee she's worried about. It's another pee. Prayers. Getting on her knees by the side of the bed, Rose starts to pray. Praying they could all just get some rest, Dorothy tells her not to worry about it. Besides, God is so busy dealing with Pat Robertson, he could use the break. Pat Robertson is the shriveled, sentient scab that has ripped vulnerable people off while hosting the 700 Club since the mid-1960s. It's his incessant thoughts and prayers that have occupied God's ears all these years, leaving people like Rose having to squeeze their prayers in when they can. Fun fact, Pat's dad was a senator, and one of his pieces of legislation, the Federal Aid and Wildlife Restoration Act, which takes tax money from ammunition sales to protect wildlife, is still in effect. So perhaps Pat was just a one-off in his rottenness. Oh, uh-huh, what's that? Ah, his dad was also one of only 19 senators to make a statement against Brown versus Board of Education, allowing for desegregation. Oh, I see. Well, here are some of Pat's most godly moments. Amen. I'm talking about the cheating. He cheated on you. Well, he's a man. Okay. There's never been a civilization ever in history that has embraced homosexuality and uh, uh, has survived. There are a bunch of people who are just bums. And if these people are out drugging themselves, let them starve to death. You've got a couple of uh, same-sex guys kissing. You like that? Well, that makes me want to throw up. America, if you want to bring the judgment of God on this nation, you just keep this stuff up. Having gotten the whip handle, if I can use that term, then to instruct their white neighbors how to behave. Now, that's critical race theory. What is this mac and cheese? Is that a black thing? It is a black thing, Pat. Well, you could become a Muslim, then you could beat her. Pat Robertson leaves behind the empire he built on comments like that, retiring at the age of 91. 
Praying in the form of a phone conversation, Rose starts out by apologizing for the late hour, giving her full name before showering God with compliments. After letting out her own, oh God, out of disbelief, Rose tells Blanche to wait her turn. As Rose goes on, she shares that she's grateful, but also has a lot of questions, like why poverty exists and what the spokesmodel category is on Star Search. Star Search was a talent competition show hosted by Ed McMahon from 1983 to 1995. Unlike the singing competitions we've been saturated with for years, Star Search allowed for not only solo singers, but groups and in multiple genres. Additionally, they had categories for dancing, comedians, and yes, spokesmodel. This was basically a mix of Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition combined with a pageant. Now, do you plan to uh, continue your modeling career? You're going to get married and have a family. <laughs> well, I'm sure I'll have a family sometime, but I'm a little bit young. I'm only 21, and I think I'll wait a little bit. But... You've got plenty of time. All right. As sweet as it is to hear Rose's prayer of gratitude for her friends and wishes for them to be protected, the girls are tired. So in an effort to make this nightmare end, Dorothy pulls out her Ben Gazzara impersonation and starts talking to Rose as God. Thanks. Now, uh, go to bed. Shocked, Rose leaps into the bed just as Blanche leans over to Dorothy to compliment her quick thinking. But the nearly asleep Dorothy denies having done it, panicking Blanche into a prayer. <laughs> Coco, I know that you are still learning the Golden Girls. We're halfway through the series. Uh, that Salvador Linguini line really stayed with you. You love referencing it. When I think of Salvador over Sofia with noodles hanging out of his mouth, there's like a particular corpse in a movie or something that I think of <laughs> that kind of is like blue and and has like like pasta hanging out of his lips. Or it's, entrails. <laughs> I, it's something. <laughs> But that's what I think of. And I i mean, I do reference it all the time because, well, that's a fun idea. <laughs> Showing up to bed trying to get frisky while covered in noodles and sauce. And I don't think covered. He's just got like three or four hanging. Yeah, dangles, remnants. I danglers. picture uh, like what my mom looks like after a meal. Yeah. <laughs> Which is usually like some a, a piece or two on the chest. <laughs> Yeah, there's some blue corpse I see in my head, hmm. and I don't know what it is. Maybe it's from a cartoon. I yeah, I just don't know. I've never, I just never explored it because <laughs> it's only been in my head for a little while. But eventually, it will make me go insane enough. That I'll figure, <laughs> I'll figure it out. So, stay tuned. <laughs> As the ladies sip coffee, Sophia continues to argue her point. Her son has called for help. She has to go. Even though, as Blanche points out, Sophia had made it seem as though Phil and Sally, his wife, were getting along well, Sophia knew they were never a good couple. He needs to be supported and loved, preferably by someone who would have taken him to such success the diamond in his tooth could have been a real one. Dorothy doesn't tolerate her mother backing her nincompoop brother any longer. He's made his choices and he has put himself in this position, mostly because of his choices in women. Oh yeah, Sophia asks? because it's that much better than the fools y'all have brought around this house? Rose defends their choices. The dating pool at their age isn't exactly the deepest. And besides, as Blanche joins in, they've had winners in the mix. Right, just like American Jockey and holder of world record for the most professional jockey wins for 29 years, Willie Shoemaker. Because Blanche has ridden many a winner. So let's revisit Blanche and the Younger Man, the arrival of Frank the Priest, what? the Nightmare Before Christmas, and Coco's favorite character in my favorite scene, the introduction of Dr. Jonathan Newman. Dorothy heads to the door and, looking in from the outside, another rarely seen angle, we see it isn't Rose at the door, but Blanche that is entertaining company. Dressed in her best 80s pastel gym attire and a seductive arm stretched to the top of the door, Blanche is making eyes at a hunk of an 80s, well, for the lack of better word, beefcake. Playing Dirk is not JFK Jr., but actor Charles Hill. Besides Golden Girls, he had four credits to his name, then... Poof. I have looked and looked, but cannot find any information about why he didn't act again. So if you or someone you know is Charles Hill, please have him email me so we can know what the heck happened. 
As Blanche thanks him for the ride home from the gym and says, see you next time at Jazzercise, he asks if he can see her before then. With Sophia and Dorothy looking on, Blanche excitedly leaves him hanging until she can check her date book before gleefully turning around to the girls to pretend she's debating as to whether or not she would actually go out with him since he is a little bit younger than her. This obvious statement is not only met with a deadpan face at the camera from Dorothy, but with a snicker of ridiculousness from the audience. And now, my second favorite scene in the series, once again brought to us by Blanche, and like my first place moment, an unexpected dinner guest. Opening the door, we find Frank, who is now dressed in clerical clothing including the white collar and everything. Part of what makes this moment so great is that unlike a little romance, we have met Frank, so we're in the know as to what has happened. Blanche, on the other hand, is totally unaware, which is why she's confused it's a priest going door to door to ask for money instead of the nuns. Willing to donate, Blanche leaves to get her purse, but not before Frank stops her. You don't need your purse. I'm Frank. Playing Father Frank Leahy is John McMartin, who had a nearly 60-year screen career with concurrent stage success. With 42 on- and off-Broadway credits and 81 screen credits, John won hearts and awards. Maybe he knows something about Shirley MacLaine's multiple lives as he co-starred with her in Sweet Charity. His film and television career started in the 1950s on As the World Turns and ended in 2015 with Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. In between, he was on Hawaii Five-O, The Partridge Family, The Bob Newhart Show, Phyllis, All the President's Men, Blowout, Falcon Crest, Who's That Girl with Madonna, Cheers, Murder, She Wrote, Empty Nest, Coach, Frasier, Oz, and Law and & Order. Wow. I know. What a, what a career. It's and the, the and only, in all of them, he's got that funky little mouth. He's adorable, and he's got a great voice. He talks like down Love here. Love his voice. I'm Frank. Love that weird little mouth. Terrific. He's wow. cool in Blowout. Blowout's a cool movie. His look, you could very easily, he passes as a priest, and you could believe him as a villain. Yeah. You know? I think that's maybe part of Absolutely. his, like, uh, built-in versatility. Yeah, he looks like an unassuming hitman. Yeah. Or your neighbor, Frank, who turns out to be a priest. <laughs> Dreams you didn't dare are dead. Were they ever there? Who said, I don't remember, I don't remember at all when the news gets from frank's lips to blanche's ears you can see her whole face even hairline shift shocked to see the hunk as a priest blanche asks for forgiveness but not in his official capacity a priest forgiving or providing absolution means they are depending on the branch of christianity you are part of providing a sacrament or prayer resetting your sin clock as far as Southern Baptists go, shout out to my Grammy, they do have a type of confession and forgiveness, but not a formal absolution process. From CatholicExchange.com, with a Catholic confession, there is a detailed account of the sinning and a full prayer and forgiveness process. It's very Catholic. With Baptists, it's more of a, I sinned, and the priest is like, eh, you've had the blood of Christ, you're good. Twaddling on, giving us full-on shrimp energy, Blanche corrects herself. Please just forgive me for calling you a hunk. Besides, I'm a Baptist, and those Baptists, both officially and casually, just cannot be forgiven. Wiping the sweat from her brow before using the Lord's name in vain, then apologizing, then lying about it, then using the Lord's name in vain again, then confessing to lying, Blanche is a mess. Welcoming him into the home, she basically flings her hand at him to close the door, no longer concerned with presenting the perfect date night. It doesn't take long for Frank to figure out that Dorothy didn't know he was a priest. Blanche can't understand how that would be possible, given that he has a pretty distinctive uniform. When it comes to his boring Steve Jobs-inspired wardrobe, it depends on the church, but priests are allowed to wear regular clothes. The robes, collars, and other religious wear are designated for specific services or events. Did all of your priests and nuns, like, did they wear the clerical or were they in, like, casual Friday stuff? The priests at my grade school all wore the all black with the uh, the collar thing, whatever that's called. Mm -hmm. And then my high school had Franciscan monks 
who were staff and also just worked there at the church. But they all wore like the brown robes, you know, St. Oh, Francis. Oh, yeah, with like, like the tie in the middle. Yeah, St. Francis. I've seen Sister Act. Unaware priests could wear regular citizen clothing and making a joke about the two spectrums of sexuality the persons occupying the couch represent, Blanche is shocked to learn priests can take their clothes off. Sure, they can change their clothes and do other things regular people do, except for that one thing. Floppo knows what we're talking about. <laughs> Here to make things even more awkward is Rose. Without hesitation or even acknowledgement of his clothing, she walks straight up to Frank and shakes his hand. As Blanche sits between watching the interaction, it doesn't take long for her to realize Rose is panicking as she twaddles on about how Dorothy cares about Frank. Kudos for the director here, whose comedic timing was spot on. As Rose talks and talks, her voice becoming more uncomfortable with each statement, Blanche tries to interrupt, but there's no stopping her. After a few Rose attempts, Blanche stands up. Mere inches from Rose's face, she's facing her while Rose is looking at Frank. And in that moment, the camera changes from a wide shot to a close-up of the two of them, panting, eyes wide and wandering, and with a horrified tone, Rose blurts it out. He's a priest, isn't he? Not knowing what else to say to connect to the priest, Rose has a seat and gives her condolences for Helltown's cancellation. What was Helltown? Well, get ready for some fun facts. The synopsis of Helltown is basically a man who grew up in a rough neighborhood, playing pool, breaking the law, probably even shooting some hoops, became a priest working in that same neighborhood. But he's not like the other priests. He's a cool priest. With a show that sounds that thrilling, you might be shocked to learn it only ran from September to December 1985 on the girls' station NBC. Frank probably didn't watch it as priests are permitted to view television as long as they believe it's non-titillating. On top of all of that, there's, well, it's not an oh boy so much as a yikes. The star of Helltown, Robert Blake, that guy that was acquitted of the murder of his wife while at a restaurant in L.A. in 2005. Yikes. Even with all of that, I will say it had one hell of a theme song. Heavenly Father... Let us go among them. Rose's line about Helltown and how funny it is really depends on whether or not you know what that means. It's it's like a funny line because you figure it's some sort of show. Mm -hmm. But unless you've seen Helltown, <laughs> know who's in it, see the premise, the trailer, all of it. I mean, it is it is bonkers. Yeah, it makes me think. Um, I mean, it's a really that is a time capsule joke because that show was on for two months. So I'm I can only guess that it was like probably really promoted through the summer as like a fall premiere and then it just totally bombed and so I'm sure like maybe had a cover of TV Guide or something and then it was like by the way this has been canceled Helltown sent to TV Hell hey it reminds me of um, Average Joe <laughs> do you remember that from this year I, I sure barely do <laughs> it looked so bad <laughs> where it was like you, we were inundated with these commercials for this show, and everyone was like, no, thank you. No one asked for that. Imagine three worlds <laughs> where a man can be a doctor, a teacher? Uh, a cop. A cop and a rock star. Yeah. A white man now. He's just an average white guy doing average white guy jobs. I mean, can you even conceive of that? <laughs> it's just impossible. Somehow they pulled it off, well, and everyone hated it. <laughs> They pulled it off and then pulled the plug. 
But yeah, hell, yeah, you can you do kind of get like, oh, Helltown, so it must be religious related. So that's funny, whatever. But it is much funnier once you hear the song, watch any of the action and know the plot of it. Just then, Dorothy returns, now dressed for a date, but not for a dinner with a priest. In black pants and an iridescent sequined blouse, she definitely took Blanche's advice and found something flashy. Laying eyes on her date, more importantly, his clothing, she has but one question. Is that a Nehru jacket? Like that which was worn by mid-century Indian Prime Minister Jawari Nehru? They broke into mainstream U.S. fashion thanks to the Beatles, as they were commonly worn by villains in James Bond films, Dr. Evil in Austin Powers also sported one. Hopefully that helps you picture the high-collared, hip-length jacket. Lest we forget Sensei Steven Seagal. Oh my god, of course. The beefy king of the Nehru jacket. He loves a Nehru jacket. Well, it makes sense. It covers a lot of Seagal. <laughs> And he does seem to love cultural appropriation. Leaving their friend to deal with her situation, the girls go to the kitchen while the couple talk about the miscommunication. Dorothy's pretty embarrassed about it all, especially her outfit. Even when Frank tries to compliment her, all she can say is, I look like the mother of a solid gold dancer. For eight years, starting in 1980, solid gold brought the hits of the day into homes every week presented by such illustrious hosts as Dionne Warwick, Andy Gibb, Nina Blackwood, Rick Dees, and Arsenio Hall. Sure, there were other shows like Soul Train that played pop hits, but what made Solid Gold so groovy was that instead of having peasants dance in a line showing off their moves, Solid Gold had professional dancers that put together choreographed dances to go along with the songs. No word on whether their mothers dressed in the same flashy, glamorous, Mostly ridiculous outfits. Welcome to another start of another solid gold year. The best music our industry has to offer. This year promises to be the very best one yet. And during the next 12 months, Solid Gold will be bringing you the brightest stars, the hottest sounds, and of course, the greatest dancers you've ever seen. So stay with us. We'll be right back with great music. Blanche starts beaming as she pours a drink from the punch bowl on the sofa table. She simply must give them the gift she's made. I love that feeling when you found the perfect gift and you just cannot wait to give it. Loving the idea she came up with, Blanche made the same gift for each lady. Opening the boxes, the gals find they've been gifted a calendar called The Men of Blanche's Boudoir. I love that the cover is her headshot for the show, the one where she's wearing the yellow blazer. It doesn't take away from it or anything. It kind of makes it seem even more legitimate that, like Samantha on Sex and the City, of course Blanche would have professional headshots. Blanche seems like someone who expects to possibly become a famous actress at any moment. Yes. So, yeah. That, She's just waiting out. to be discovered. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Until the day she died. <laughs> Flipping through the pages and acting like this was a thoughtful gift, the ladies are, well speechless as to what they're seeing. Well, not totally speechless. Dorothy can muster a whoa when looking at September, leaving Sophia shocked Blanche could walk in October. I love Blanche's response to this. Not shy, but almost like she's acting humble at her accomplishment by touching Sophia's shoulder while turning her back to her. The concern surrounding Blanche's walking ability for October is in relation to the plentiful endowment of the guy posing for September. If a penis, toy, hand, or otherwise is too large, the cervix, should you have one, could be getting hit, which doesn't feel great and can lead to cramping. Or perhaps you're out of shape and all that bending around leaves your body sore. To ease your pain post-sex, you can take a warm bath, take some Advil, and let her rest. No matter if you're dealing with a Mr. September or a Miss January, sex should never hurt. If there is pain, make sure you have enough lubricant that you're relaxed, and be sure to communicate your needs with your partner. If you have continued pain, talk to your doctor. Speaking of the calendar, you simply must go to YouTube and look up Golden Girls Calendar Blooper. There you will find the clip of the ladies rehearsing this scene, except instead of men from Blanche's boudoir, it's the men of the props department for the show. They got some of the behind-the-scenes guys to make a fake version of the calendar, surprising the girls during rehearsal. 
It's not only precious to see them in regular clothes, even Estelle out of makeup, but to watch them laugh themselves into tears looking at the photos, it will cheer any sour mood. Dorothy is alone in the living room when the doorbell rings again. She answers it and is much more patient when it comes to listening as Dr. Newman learned from his first interaction he better introduce himself quickly, which he does, to which Dorothy asks, are you absolutely sure? Dr. Newman is played by actor Brent Collins. He is most known for his role as Dr. Jonathan Newman on The Golden Girls. Okay, maybe that's just me, but he also did some work with soap operas like Another World and As the World Turns, during which he was one of the main characters and got a lot of screen time. Sadly, Brent passed away at the age of 46 years old, just three years after his appearance on The Golden Girls. Interestingly enough, Brent was diagnosed with having dwarfism, but he also suffered from Marfan syndrome, a genetic condition that affects connective tissues and causes growth. His rapid growth in his mid-40s is actually what led to the heart attack that took Brent's life. I'm really sorry to have bummed you out with that. It's just an incredibly rare combo of dwarfism and Marfan syndrome, and Brent's story deserves to be told. As Dorothy realizes Dr. Newman is who he says he is, she offers for him to come in the house. Again, this is where the height jokes come in, but at Dorothy's expense this time, when she slips and asks if she can take his height instead of his hat. She's clearly uncomfortable and knows she's already said the wrong thing. A fun little moment in this scene, when she takes his hat, it kind of curls and crumples a little, and then when the shot changes to looking at Dorothy, the hat is in pristine condition. Then Blanche comes back in from the kitchen. Dorothy attempts to introduce her to Dr. Newman, which is quickly met with a get out of here and a giggle. Dorothy is clearly mortified at Blanche's response. This is the only moment in the scene that isn't perfect. I wish Blanche had said, but he's a little. Okay, let me clarify. In the scene, Blanche says, but he's a... And then Dorothy jumps onto what she was saying to say, a little early, yes. I just wish Blanche had gotten that little out to make it even more awkward. But if leaving that tiny moment means we get this take, then I'm happy. Dorothy continues attempting to introduce him to Blanche before Rose comes in from the kitchen. There's a twinkle in her eye as she greets Jonathan and approaches him with open arms. Jonathan compliments Rose, but before they can go any further, Blanche hops in with a, oh, wait a minute. Everything that happens now is perfection. Dorothy's hands are stressfully wrung. The four of them are standing between the couch and coffee table, so it feels like a play, but also like they're kind of trapped in the cringiness of it all. Blanche puts that jumpsuit to work by having her hands on her hips before making her way past Dorothy to be in between her and Rose. She claims she's figured it all out that Rose is mad that Blanche invited her new beau over without asking, and as some sort of hire someone with a physical disability prank, she had whomever this man is come in Jonathan's place. Everything about that is so wrong, which is why it is so great. She couldn't have said more wrong or oh boy things, and she's just kind of stuck in it. As Blanche keeps unraveling the mystery, she begins to unravel. She gives Rose a fake punch-pinch to the shoulder before letting out the most uncomfortable, high-pitched giggle that, as Dorothy starts to say her name, Blanche, and she's looking at Rose's lipless face, she realizes she is very wrong and this is in fact Rose's date and she has now made him out to be some sort of freak for hire. Dorothy hangs her head in her hand. Rose sternly stares her down. Jonathan has a look of, is she for real? Blanche starts to panic as she has no one to turn to. Facing the audience as the horror of her mistake washes across her face, her giggle crescendos into my favorite moment. Say it with me now. God, I wish I was dead. Without an I'm so sorry or any kind of eye contact, Dorothy saves Blanche from the situation and reminds her they have food to get in the kitchen. Blanche hangs her head in shame as she makes her way far away from everything that just happened. Blanche enters the kitchen winded and worked up. While Dorothy was helpful getting her away from the living room, she has no problem agreeing with her when she points out that she's made a fool of herself. 
Instead of letting that incident dictate the whole night, Dorothy points out that Blanche needs to relax so they can all just enjoy themselves. This gives me a first runner-up for favorite moment. We're treated to a tight shot of Blanche from the shoulders up as she agrees with Dorothy. Of course, I have to be relaxed so my guest can be. Blanche starts to firmly whisper talk to herself as she pumps herself up, and when doing so, she oh so gently reaches up to her earring and starts to fiddle with it while saying, I can't allow him to feel ill at ease. And the more she fiddles and thinks and talks, the more her eyes start to flutter as she, in her best Southern Belle voice, realizes it would be unsouthern. Blanche is reinvigorated thanks to Dorothy's pep talk, and she asks her to grab the door so she can bring the food to her guest, her guest that she desperately wants to make feel comfortable. In another beautifully choreographed moment, Blanche kitten heel clicks her way from the kitchen into the living room, past the chair, towards the couch. Without stopping, she announces the appetizer. Shrimp! <laughs> Coco, isn't it nice that even though this was so long ago and the characters of each episode tend to only be in one episode, we still get to see Dr. Jonathan Newman once more. It was a real treat to see him again. And I love his suit. And oh, it's a I think, dapper suit. I think Blanche is giving an all-timer performance in that, in that sequence. Yes. The shrimp. <laughs> and I think I noticed this time, even though I've seen that scene I'm not kidding, probably a hundred times. The The bodysuit really works so well because it's almost like they're usually in layers upon layers. So they usually have, you know, their really fancy dress and then they have their duster over it or they have their, you know, uh, cardigan over their daytime dress. You know, there's usually several layers, even though they're in Miami. And there's something about this, like, cotton-looking, thin jumpsuit that she's almost vulnerable like because you can really see her body i think that helps to to really express her discomfort yeah more than a lot of layers were yeah it is like she's she's unprotected from yeah those sorts of things. She were, i really noticed layers. that this time that she's really kind of more vulnerable that way and she's also able to express stuff more so like the way she stomps in with the shrimp you're just like seeing her whole body kind of like i can do this i can do this and then it kind of almost falls into shambles when she screams shrimp at him and then she has to carry herself off so i feel like she kind of composes herself too does she kind of like straighten her back out oh yeah she goes once back she's into the like kitchen, yes back out? Yeah. you know that would be unsouthern and then she's like ready to go and then it doesn't work <laughs> What? I love Frank, too. Frank is one of my favorite characters. We just watched it. It was on Hallmark a couple days ago, and he's just incredibly charming in that, and it gave us, well, m one of my favorite clips. What? what? <laughs> <laughs> and you just saw him the other day in uh, Blowout. Oh, yeah. he was. Yeah, he was in Brian De Palma's Blowout. He plays a kind of a scumbag. Yeah, he's I shouldn't shady. Say, yeah, he's a real, real mean political guy with a bow tie and a tuxedo but he still has that fun little voice so charming it's like not a kermit voice but kind i don't mean that in a bad way but you know like it kind of comes from there's some rich butterscotch little going bit, on a little bit up here kind of a thing yeah like a classy rich frog butterscotch. <laughs> is my name <laughs> what? still begging rose wants to know if there's anything that can be said or done to get sophia to change her mind but there's no stopping a mother that has been summoned to help her child. When Dorothy tries to point out that she too is her child and needs her, Sophia disagrees. She's strong and independent. She'll be fine. She might not be blood, but Blanche needs her there too. No, Sophia argues. You were doing just fine before I got here. You'll be fine after. Fine. Well, how about Rose then? Rose doesn't need Sophia. She needs the Wizard of Oz to help her get a brain. When Sophia goes to pack, Blanche gives it one last plea. But she's leaving in the morning, and that is that. As always, thank you for listening, and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week for the thrilling conclusion of Golden Moments. That's, that's the kind of energy. I need better. to listen to that every night before I go to bed, and then I'll wake up with this kind of energy. Oh, that's that must be ready what it is. to roll. You got the the Tesh, I got the Tesh energy. Yeah, the Tesh touch. 
As Dorothy sits at the kitchen table looking (laughs) contemplative, (laughs) lights up at the idea that it could be the seafood medley flavor. Just as she turns to leave the kitchen, Dorothy pulls her bath. Bath? I don't think that's what you meant. (laughs) Or is it? She pulled a bath. You know how they say. To prove her point, we revisit. To prove her point, we we revisit. We revisit. Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.